Adam Grant, the big teacher of organizational psychology at Penn, he's a big TED Talk speaker, he's written a bunch of books that are bestsellers. He was recently giving an interview on NPR, and he told this story that I just loved about the phenomenon of being wrong. Ask yourself the last time that you realized you were wrong, and if you could do what the protagonist in this story does. So Adam Grant is giving a lecture at Penn, and he sees that in the crowd is Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize in behavioral economics. And so here's Adam Grant giving a lecture, and one of the students in the class has won a Nobel. He's Daniel Kahneman, thinking fast and slow, Daniel Kahneman. And so Adam Grant is definitely focused on Daniel Kahneman. And he notices that as he's speaking, Daniel Kahneman is smiling. And there's a gleam in his eye. And his face lights up. And speakers know when someone is connecting and Adam Grant sees that something he's saying is making Daniel Kahneman connect. And when the, when the, the lecture is over, Daniel Kahneman bounces onto the bima, so to speak. <laughs> and he says to him, I loved your lecture. Thank you so much for that lecture. Just loved it. And Adam Grant says to him, thank you. Coming from you, that means everything. Do you mind? Can I ask you? I'd like to learn from this. What was it about my lecture that you loved? And Daniel Kahneman said, your lecture demonstrated to me that I was wrong. And Adam Grant says, my lecture made you think you're wrong. Why then did you love it? And he said, I loved it because now that I know that I'm wrong, I can get better and wiser. Daniel Kahneman was not only wrong, he was joyfully wrong. He was joyfully wrong because now that I know I was wrong, and I know where I was wrong, and I know how I was wrong, I can get better and wiser, and I can become a better version of myself. Now, here's the question I want to double-click on for you this morning. All of us are wrong from time to time. That goes with the territory of being human. To err is human. My beloved wife, Shira, tells me that the epitaph she's going to put on my grave is often wrong, never in doubt. <laughs> often wrong, never in doubt. Now, I wish she could put a different epitaph on my grave, which is joyfully wrong. And my question is, we're all often wrong, but we're all seldom 
joyfully wrong, what is it that blocks people from doing what, Adam, Adam, what Daniel Kahneman did? What is it that blocks us from saying, wow, yay, I was wrong, and now I can get better? So the answer to that question, no doubt, is found in our reading this morning. The poster child, the poster child, for I cannot be joyfully wrong, is Jacob. In his last chapter, Jacob is going to bless his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And according to the convention of that time, as Joseph himself tries to remind his father, since Manasseh is older, Jacob should bless older Manasseh with his right hand. And since Ephraim is younger, Jacob should bless younger Ephraim with his left hand. But comes time for the blessing, and Jacob blesses younger Ephraim with his right hand and blesses older Manasseh with his left hand, thus flouting the convention. And Joseph says, Dad, 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 Dad. Not the way to do it. Manasseh is older with the right hand. Ephraim is younger with the left hand. Dad, do it the right way, please. Love you, but please. And Jacob says, Joseph, I've got this. And I know what I'm doing. And Manasseh's okay, he's going to be fine. But the fact is, Ephraim is better. Ephraim is stronger. Ephraim is greater. The younger is going to eclipse the older. The younger is going to oust the older. I'm going to put my right hand on the younger. And that's what he does. Now, I was talking about this story with my sister Jill. And my sister Jill put it just perfectly. She said, has he learned nothing? Has Jacob learned absolutely nothing? And the answer seems to be yes. He has learned absolutely nothing. Shabbat shalom. We continue with Musaf. <laughs> He's learned nothing. After all, think about Jacob's life. His entire life, his family life, has not once but twice been ruined by invidious comparison of siblings. His family life, not once but twice, has been ruined by the virus of who's going to eclipse who, who's going to oust who, who's going to be greater than who, who's going to be stronger than who. The younger is going to eclipse the older. Not once but twice. In his original family, his trying to eclipse Esau causes the implosion of the whole family. After he steals the blessing from his blind father that was intended for his older brother, the family implodes. He never sees his parents again. He doesn't see his brother for 20 years. And when he finally does, there's a residue of discord and distrust that never goes away. And then Jacob, having done that in his family of origin, repeats it by preferring Joseph. Family implodes. Doesn't see his son, mourns his son. Residue of discord and distrust between the brothers. So you would think... That Jacob would say, hey, 
this favoring one over the other, this invidious comparison, this the younger is going to eclipse the older, this one's going to be better than that one, this one's got a more glorious future than that one, that one's okay, but this one, oh my God, this one. You'd think, you'd think, ah, not a good idea. You'd think that now he would do something different. Now it's my chance to say this virus stops, and this virus stops with me, and this virus stops now, and I'm going to create a different world for my grandsons. But no, he does the same thing. Has he learned nothing? The answer is yes, he has learned absolutely nothing. Now, this is why this is so important. This is why this is so important. There are so many Jacobs in our country. What happened with Jacob? What happened with Jacob is what happens when you become your view, when your view becomes you, when what you think, what you think becomes who you are, what you think becomes your identity, your ideas become your identity, you become your view, and your view becomes you. And that was Jacob. Jacob is named for being the supplanter. He supplants, that's what he does. He eclipses, that's what he does. He ousts. That's how he rolls. And because he thinks, because his view is, because his idea is that supplanting is good, that's what he does again and again and yet again. A supplanter will supplant. And a supplanter is too close to his idea of supplanting to think maybe this is wrong. Maybe I can give Menashe and Ephraim a different view. He can't be joyfully wrong. Because if he's joyfully wrong, then that abnegates his very identity. Because his whole identity is wrapped up in this. And I don't need to tell you, you know. If you read the papers, you know. If you follow the news, you know. How many people in our country, their view is who they are, who they are is their view. And when that happens, they can't be joyfully wrong because they're too wrapped up in how they see the world. So I want to tell you a story about a person who had very strong views. And they were their view. And then they were able to disentangle what they thought from who they are, what they thought from their identity, in a way that added so much blessing to their life, to the people in their life, and to the world. So one day, it was September 1, 1986, it was a Monday, a 35-year-old woman named Laura Scroff is walking in Manhattan at 56th and Broadway. And Laura Scroff at this time is 35 years old, and she is just crushing life. She is successful. She is super successful. She has a big job in advertising. She's pulling down a big salary. She has a luxury condo. She's just in control of life. And on that day, she was actually going to the U.S. Open. She had tickets to the U.S. Open. She didn't even love tennis. 
but she loved being able to have tickets to the US Open. Because <laughs> if you have good tickets to the US Open, you're kind of making it in life, and she's making it in life. Laura Scroft, 35, on the rise, making it in life. And she's in her world, and then as she's walking at 56th and Broadway, she hears somebody say, lady, lady, do you have any spare change? I'm really hungry. And she walks on by. She walks on by. She doesn't stop. She doesn't hear him. And she explains why she doesn't hear him. She says, excuse me, lady, do you have any spare change? I'm hungry. She observes, when I heard him, I didn't really hear him. His words were part of the clatter, like a car horn or someone yelling for a cab. They were, you could say, just noise, the kind of nuisance New Yorkers learn to tune out. So I walked right past him as if he wasn't there. And then, and I'm still not sure why I did this, I came back. So she asked the question, why did she walk past him initially? And there were two very compelling reasons. Number one, he wasn't on her schedule. And she keeps a schedule. She says, I'm a woman whose life runs on schedules. I make appointments. I fill slots. I micromanage the clock. I bounce around from meeting to meeting, ticking things off a list. I'm not merely punctual. I'm 15 minutes early for any and every engagement. That's how I live. It is who I am. Why did she ignore him? As she puts it, and I quote, very simply, because he was not in my schedule. And then there's another reason as well. And we can all connect with the second reason for sure, if not also the first reason, because there's just a lot of panhandlers. She notes, after a while, you just got used to them. Hard, gaunt men and sad, haunted women, wearing rags, camped on corners, sleeping on grates, asking for change. They were just so prevalent that most people made an almost subconscious decision to simply look the other way to basically ignore them. The problem seems so vast, so endemic, that stopping to help a single panhandler could feel all but pointless. So she can explain very well why she walked on by. She can't quite explain what it was in her that made her turn around. But at a certain moment, it dawned on her that walking past him because she was so busy would have been wrong. Something in that moment, what she saw, claimed him, claimed her, her heart. She says, I saw that he was a child, tiny body, sticks for arms, big round eyes. He wore a burgundy sweatshirt that was smudged and frayed and ratty burgundy sweatpants to match. He'd scruffed white sneakers with untied laces, and his fingernails were dirty, but his eyes were bright, and there was a general sweetness about him. He was, I would soon learn, 11 years old. So she comes back to him and says, I won't give you spare change, but I'd love to take you for lunch. And so she takes him to McDonald's, the nearest McDonald's in the 56th and Broadway in New York City. And 
she asks him, when was the last time you've eaten a meal? And he can't remember the last time he's eaten a meal. And so he eats. He says, can I get whatever I want on the menu? And she says, yes. And so in one sitting, he eats a cheeseburger, a Big Mac, large French fries, Diet Coke, and a large, thick chocolate shake. And then she hears his story. And it's a story that she couldn't even imagine could happen. His story is that his father uh, is a gang member and left the family at the age of six. And his mother is a crack and heroin addict. His name is Maurice, Maurice Mazik. And in his entire 11 years, he's received two gifts. One is a toy truck, and the other is a joint. And so Laura Scroft's heart was melted by Maurice Mazik. And they continued to meet, that was a Monday, for 150 Mondays. Every Monday, they would have lunch. At first, she would take him to McDonald's, and they would eat there. And then she took him to her home, this fancy condo. And he had never in his life sat down to a home-cooked meal. And they just really got to know each other, and she really got to care for him. And she said to him, uh, what do you take for lunch? And he said, I don't take anything for lunch. And so she said, I want to start making you lunch. And he said, well, if you do, will you put it in a brown paper bag, specifically a brown paper bag? And she said to him, sure, but why a brown paper bag? And 11-year-old Maurice Masick said, because if a kid comes to school carrying lunch in a brown paper bag, that means somebody out there in the world cares about them. Roll the film forward. Maurice Mazik is now an adult. He's married. He and his wife have seven children. And he credits Laura Scroff with turning his life around. They continue to see each other every month. And his seven children know and love Laura Scroff, and they call her Auntie Laura. And she says for her part, that the single proudest accomplishment in her life is that she can call Maurice Mazik her friend. She wrote a whole book about this, about a 30-year friendship called An Invisible Thread. And the birth of An Invisible Thread was that moment when she had walked past him and wasn't going to see him, and wasn't going to respond, and didn't hear, and didn't see, and she stopped. And even though she was busy, and he wasn't on her schedule, and even though he's just a panhandler, and there's a city full of panhandlers, and she can't solve all the problem of all the desperation, and all the poverty on the streets, so she was very fortified in her ability to say no again. Something in her called to her, made her realize she needed to respond. And she calls her book an invisible thread because that moment of being joyfully wrong 
created an invisible thread that connected her not only to Maurice, but to a mission of repair. So here's my question for you in 2022. Where are you joyfully wrong? And how can being joyfully wrong create an invisible thread that is going to connect you to people and work and mission that's just deeply important to you and to the world? After all, one moment of being joyfully wrong can create a lifetime of being joyfully right. Shabbat Shalom. We continue.